35% of Americans do not get enough of this. Let's dive in. Welcome to a Healthy Control Podcast, providing education to create a healthy, balanced lifestyle, empowering you to take control of your health and not let health take control of you. Decreased mouths can lead to drowsiness, decreased cognitive function, anxiety and depression, and just overall grumpiness. What is that? Sleep. We're going to dive into the science of sleep, why it matters, and some very practical tips for better sleep. Whether you're a perpetual four-hour-per-night sleeper or someone who needs you know, 10 to 12 hours, this is for you. Sleep is far more complex than just close your eyes, shut your brain off, and wake up. Now, admittedly, sometimes shutting the brain off is the most difficult task, which we'll talk about how to fix that later. In sleep, there's actually five stages. Well, there's four stages with the fifth being awake, so not sleeping. But as the stages progress from one to three, you go into a deeper sleep. And 75% of the night is spent in these three stages, one, two, three. And it's actually very organized how we sleep. We start in N1, then go to N2, N3. Back to N2, don't know why, we just do, and then we go to REM sleep, or R-E-M. That stands for rapid eye movement. And if you actually Google this or YouTube this, you can see that when people are in REM sleep, their eyes are actually moving. That's why it's called rapid eye movement. Their eyelids are still closed, but you can see the eyeball moving. And the really cool thing is, the longer we're asleep for, the more REM sleep we get. So the, the proportion of REM sleep increases over the night. Now, there's actually a way to measure what stage of sleep you're in, and that's with brainwave activity. You could put a scan on someone and see they have delta waves, which means they're in stage three. Does that matter for most people? No, not really. But I'm just kind of giving you confidence that we're not just making these stages up. So stage one, this is light sleep. An EEG would read theta waves at a very low voltage. Theta waves are also strong during focus, meditation, prayer, or spiritual awareness type of activities. And we only spend about 5% of the night in this stage. So you know when someone's falling asleep on the couch and maybe they start snoring or twitching or something like that. And you tell them go to bed and they insist they're not asleep. More than likely they're actually in stage one of sleep. So technically they are asleep. It's just a very, very low level awakeness, if you want to call it that. They're kind of in that transition zone between sleeping and being awake. But yes, they should go to bed at that point. Stage two is a much more prominent stage as we spend about 45% of our sleep cycle in this stage. Your heart rate and body temperature both drop. And the hallmark EEG signals are sleep spindles and K-complexes. Again, what does that mean? Doesn't matter. But the sleep spindles are important for brain function called synaptic plasticity. This is essentially the ability of the brain neurons or brain cells to modify their connection. See, our brains are extremely adaptable. And you can see in people such as those who have had limbs amputated, the part of the brain that was responsible for moving their hand will undertake a different function of the body. It's also theorized that synaptic plasticity dysfunction can be attributed to things like Alzheimer's. Now, there's another function of sleep spindles, and that is its role in memory consolidation, especially procedural and declarative memory. Procedural memory is how you do something, and declarative memory is facts. You can really see the difference when you try to type out a word. Have you ever been halfway through typing, and all of a sudden you're like, 
I don't remember how to spell the word different. So then you backspace to the beginning and then you let your fingers do it and you spell it out correctly. You spell it out correctly because of procedural memory. Your fingers remembered how to type the word different, but your declarative memory couldn't quite remember how to spell the actual letters. A more common example or different example would just be that riding a bike, throwing a ball. Those are procedural examples. Or a declarative example would be knowing George Washington is the first president or that the ocean is blue. So sleep spindles help with memory and so do the K-complexes as well as maintaining sleep. Did you ever see the Pixar movie Inside Out? Remember the scene at the end of the day when they flushed all the memories and they go to Memory Island and then there's a worker or someone within Memory Island who would get all the memories when needed? Well, surprisingly, that's not super far off. And in this stage two of sleep helps consolidate those memories so they can be retrieved later on. So stage two is when the memory is actually being sent away. I don't know if there's anything to it, but when I was in uh, college studying this, every night before bed, I read through my sleep notes and I end up doing much better than that test than I did all the other tests. Maybe I was just more interested in sleep or maybe it's because I read it right before bed. Either way, give it a try. Last fun fact about stage two is that this is a stage when you t- grind your teeth. So stage three, this is the deepest non-REM sleep, and it's characterized by delta waveforms on EEG, and we spend roughly 25% of our time here. So remember, 5% in stage one, which is when you're barely asleep, 45% in stage two, which is a a deep sleep, and then 25% in stage three, which is the deepest sleep. If your partner comes back into bed or flushes the toilet or closes the door, you probably will not wake up in this stage. If you do wake up, you're probably more so in stage two. However, if something does wake you up during this stage, like, I don't know, maybe your phone alarm goes off because it's time to wake up in the morning, you're probably going to be most groggy out of all the stages. And you can even have moderately impaired mental performance for 30 minutes up to an hour if you wake up in stage three. And there's a ton going on during this stage. This is when the body repairs and regrows tissues, builds bone and muscle, and strengthens the immune system as well. This is also the stage where sleepwalking, night terrors, and bedwetting occurs. Now lastly, we have REM sleep. Again, REM, rapid eye movement. And this is actually the most interesting one to me. The brain is producing beta waves, which are similar wavelengths to being awake. However, unlike being awake, our muscles are essentially shut off, except for our eyes and our diaphragm, which, again, rapid eye movement and then diaphragm to help you breathe. This stage is also when we're dreaming. We actually only dream during REM sleep and not any other time. So if you ever wake up right in the middle of a dream, you were in REM sleep. It's like our body kind of planned it out, but if we didn't have this muscle tonia or our muscles just shutting off, then our bodies would likely try to act out whatever we're dreaming, and that could get pretty dangerous. As mentioned earlier, this stage gets longer and longer, starting about 10 minutes and ending up to be about an hour. Now, going along with dreaming, this is why I think REM sleep is so interesting. Let me know if this has ever happened to you. To me, it's happened numerous times, probably at least once a year. But I remember a few months ago, it actually happened to me about three times in the night, and it was miserable because one built on the other built on the other. So every time what I perceive is happening is I'm laying in bed and I'm awake, but I'm completely paralyzed. Every single time I hear footsteps that I don't interpret as good. I just, it doesn't sound like, you know, my wife is downstairs. It sounds like someone's entering the house or something's not good. And every single time I get this huge panic, but I can never scream. I can't make any noise. I can't move. I am just stuck. 
Now, with a normal dream, they often become lucid dreams for me, which means I, I realize I'm dreaming and I can kind of wake myself up whenever I choose. But with these awful dreams, that is sleep paralysis. And with sleep paralysis, we are utterly useless. From what I understand through my deep dive is that we're essentially stuck in between awake and REM sleep. And apparently if that happens to you a lot, you should get that checked out. So why does this science matter? Why should we care about sleep cycle or any of that stuff? Well, after this break, we're going to get into exactly that and practical tips on better night of sleep. In a meta-analysis performed back in 2021, now a meta-analysis and analysis of multiple studies and is a high level or better vote of confidence than most studies. And it said this, we found that total sleep deprivation before learning as well as after learning had a detrimental impact on memory for newly learned materials. These data suggest sleep supports learning and memory in two ways. It prepares the brain for learning over the next day, and it helps strengthen new memories learned during the previous day. So that could be why when I studied right before bed and I was getting a good night of sleep, I did better on that test. And I don't think there's anyone who doesn't learn something new or need to remember something day in and day out. Obviously, you know, if you're in school, you're learning things that way. But for those of us beyond the classroom, did you learn anything new at work today? Did you learn anything new in this podcast yet? Did a friend or a partner tell you something that you wanted to remember? Like we have a dinner date at five on Friday. Don't be late. We all have things that we need to remember, which is why sleep is so important. And we've talked about memory quite a bit already. So what are some other things that are affected by when being sleep deprived? Emotions. I mean, come on now. Have you ever been with a child who missed their nap time? They are a ticking time bomb of emotional dysfunction. They're just an easy example, though, because especially when they're really little, they haven't developed that ability to regulate their emotions yet. That's why we shouldn't get upset with the toddler for having meltdown, because they're just physically unable to regulate their emotions. It'd be like getting mad at a fifth grader because they can't answer calculus. They just haven't learned it yet. Anyways, Another meta-analysis saw a positive effect on sleep loss and negative mood, which means that the more sleep loss they had, the worse the mood got. And the younger you are, the worse that gets. They also saw a small negative effect on adaptive emotional regulation. Adaptive emotional regulation is how you deal with an emotional situation. And there's five adaptive strategies, which are acceptance, positive reappraisal, putting things into perspective, focus on planning, and positive refocusing. So when we're sleep deprived, we do all of these to a much lesser degree. And if you're interested to learn more about emotional regulation and things of emotional aspects, make sure to check out the earlier podcast on EQ. Now, there's certainly other aspects of our lives that being sleep deprived affects besides memory and mood. Your day feels much longer when all you want to do is sleep. You have little motivation to actually work out. You probably just simply don't move around as much because you just don't want to. Maybe your social skills are lacking because you just don't have the patience for people today. So it leads to the question, how can we get better sleep? So I got four little questions for you here. A little fact or fiction. I'm going to tell you a statement. Think to yourself, is that true or is that false? First one is snoring is harmful. Fact or fiction, true or false? Well, we actually started with a little trick one here because while it could be a sign of something more serious such as sleep apnea, in general, snoring is harmless. If you notice someone is snoring and they stop breathing throughout the night, that's a sign to go get tested for sleep apnea. And there's some ways to decrease snoring. 
Um, you can sleep on your side instead of on your back. Losing weight helps. Wearing a nasal strip to help open your nostrils. I personally actually wear a nasal strip quite often because it does help me breathe better through my nose. You can actually test before you buy one if you need it by putting your fingers on the side of your nose and pressing them outward, which will help open your nasal cavity. And if that helps you breathe better, then maybe a nasal strip is what you need. So the first one, a little bit trick question, but for the most part, false. Number two, when you cannot sleep, count sheep. And this, my friends, is false. While this mind-numbing repetition could potentially bore you to sleep, it's actually better to put your body into a state of relaxation with peaceful imagery, you know, laying on the beach or wherever your happy place is, rather than trying to think of things. One thing I do quite often is some meditation before I fall asleep. And what I'll do, I'll lay there, and I'll just go through my body, and I'll say, my feet are asleep, my feet are asleep, my feet are asleep, and I'll work my way up. And as I'm doing this, I literally feel my body start to tingle, and that just means that you're essentially falling asleep, and it puts me to a very deep state of relaxation. Now, from there, you can do some meditation, do some positive thinking, or you can just let that relaxation take you to sleep. The third question here, nap for as long as you need, or as long as you wish. And this is mostly false. What is important with napping is to time it appropriately with our sleep cycle. Remember, if we wake up in stage three, we're going to be pretty groggy, especially mentally, for up to an hour. So that's when you do not want to wake up is it during stage three. So the general rule of thumb is to sleep for less than 30 minutes so you avoid stage three, or sleep 90 minutes or more, 90 to 110 or so. That way you wake up during your REM sleep. It's honestly incredible how much better you can feel after a five to 10 minute nap. You don't need to take a two hour nap to feel a bit better. Number four, the last true or false here, alcohol helps you sleep. And this is false. While it may help you fall asleep, known as sleep latency, it's rather detrimental for actual sleep. So most notably, it reduces our REM sleep, which very important stage of sleep, you know, memory consolidation, emotional processing, brain development, and dreaming. Yes, you fall asleep faster, but you can worse quality of sleep. And while we're talking about alcohol, let's just flip the page and talk about caffeine a little bit. Unlike alcohol, caffeine actually increases your sleep latency or the time to fall asleep. It also increases your stage one of sleep, which is that really light sleep where you're easily be awakened. And all in all, it can reduce your sleep time by 45 minutes and your sleep efficiency by 7%. So to avoid this decrease in sleep, coffee, which is about 100 milligrams per 250 milliliters of liquid, should be consumed at least nine hours before bedtime. And pre-workout, which is about 200 milligrams, should be consumed at least 13 hours before bedtime. Now this does make it very tough for those looking to work out and then go to bed or who need that 4 p.m. coffee. I get it. We can't always be optimal, and that's understandable. Unfortunately, life is outside of the science lab, and it's always these type of recommendations. I'm like, that's great if it works for you. But if the only time you can work out is 9 p.m. and then you go to bed, it is what it is. Maybe you just decrease your caffeine intake a little bit. This is one of those things that you need to control your health and not let health control you. So I don't want anyone to use the excuse of, I'm just so tired in the afternoon, but I can't have coffee because this research said I'd need to have it nine hours prior to bedtime. 
if having coffee is going to allow you to do more in your day, spend more time with your family, live a more fulfilled, happier life, then that's what you should do. But that's just me. You control your health. So we got some more quick tips here. I'm going to give this in a little bit of a rapid style fashion. Number one, the more light you can block, the better. Blackout blinds are fantastic. Nightlights are horrible. If you have little ones, I recommend just not starting them on a nightlight. They probably don't need it. And this is, this again, this part here is just my opinion. But if you start your little one on a nightlight, you are inherently teaching them to be afraid of the dark. And then they're always going to want that nightlight until you have to unteach them that fear. Number two, noise machines are totally fine if that's what you need. I've heard conflicting things about white noise, brown noise, pink noise, or just natural sounds, etc., etc. Some people like it silent. That's cool too. Do what works for you, I guess. Number three, it's better for the room to be a little bit cooler at night because our body temperature drops. And when we drop the air temperature, you don't notice that difference as much. And it can help you fall asleep faster. Aim for 60 to 67 degrees, but no less than 54 and no more than 75. And this is going to vary depending on everyone's preference. Number four, stay off your phone and TV in the bedroom before bed. So exposure to blue light in the hours leading up to bedtime can hinder sleep. So blue light suppresses the body's release of melatonin, which is a hormone that makes us sleepy. Being exposed to blue light in the evening can trick our brains into thinking it's still daytime, disrupting circadian rhythms and leaving us feeling alert instead of tired. Number five, and I'm going to quote one of my neuroscience professors here. The bedroom is meant for two things, sleep and another thing that begins with S. This is a behavior pattern that is really fascinating. Do you know anyone who, as soon as they sit down in the the chair after dinner, you know, their chair, they always seem to fall asleep. Or maybe someone who sleeps on every long car ride no matter what. What about come home and immediately feel hungry? These are patterns we have learned and developed. Likewise, if you always go to bed, turn the lights off and go to sleep, your body will make the connection, oh, I'm in bed, lights are off, I should go to sleep. And it will improve your sleep latency. But if you always go to bed and you're on your phone for 30 minutes to an hour, or, you know, watch some TV, Whatever it may be, you're training your brain that sleep doesn't come when I lay down, it comes later. Now I'm going to leave you with this last one, and it's something I've never heard of, but I absolutely love. It's a 10-3-2-1-0 rule. Now admittedly, I don't always follow this, but in general, I like this concept. 10 hours before bed, no more caffeine. 3 hours before bed, no more food or alcohol. 2 hours before bed, no more work. One hour before bed, no more screen time. Shut off all phones, TVs, computers. And zero, the number of times you should hit snooze in the morning. 